Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's the last Monday in September, and it means Laura Johnston is sending her kids to school this morning, I believe. <laughs> this <laughs> afternoon. Oh, it's this afternoon. Okay. <laughs> You're counting down the minutes. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, along with Jane Cahoon and Chris Bernowski. Happy Monday. We got a big week ahead. Happy right. Monday. Tuesday, we got both the presidential debate and the much despised Yankees coming to town to play the Indians. The only the only odd thing here is nobody can get in to see either of them. So let's begin our discussion. Has the owner of the two nuclear plants benefiting from a one point three billion dollar bailout that was forged in corruption ever shown records? to prove it actually needs our money. Jane Cahoon, Jeremy Pelzer put together, I think it was Jeremy, put together a hell of a story about this last week that I might have missed some notice, although I think it might be on the plane dealer today. What's it say? Yes, it was Jeremy, in fact. And it says that it during the debate over House Bill 6, this bill that you just said was forged in corruption, uh, First Energy Solutions, w- that was the name of the company at the time, said it needed these subsidies from ratepayers, but it couldn't open its books to show whether the plants were profitable because it was in the middle of bankruptcy proceedings. But those proceedings are over, and the company, which is now called Energy Harbor, still isn't sharing that information. And lawmakers who are in the midst of considering whether to repeal House Bill 6 and possibly replace it with something else don't seem too eager to compel the company to release it. They've they've talked about ensuring that there's an audit at some point, but it's it's not clear whether that would be, you know, before they act on this repeal and replacement or not. I mean, House Bill 6 has a provision provision for an audit every year, but it's not supposed to begin until after the public already starts paying these subsidies. All right, so Let's break this down a little bit because this kind of <laughs> defies imagination. It's be like me going and applying for a mortgage and telling them, like, "Yeah, I don't want to show you my numbers." So, so they ask the state for one point three billion dollars from us, the people of Ohio, and they say, "But we're not going to show you we actually need it." And the legislators don't demand it. They don't say, "Well, then you're not getting the money." We want to see proof you <laughs> need it because it's forged in corruption and everybody's bought and paid for. Now, now, when they replace the thing, it's not supposed to be forged in corruption. This is supposed to be the honest version of this thing. And the company is still saying we want the money, but we're not going to show you anything to demonstrate we need it. 
Yeah, they, the state representative, Jim Hoops, a Republican who chairs this select committee that's been looking into the repeal, says he's not sure, you know, whether First Energy or Energy Harbor can even is is willing to or can testify before that committee because of lawsuits, you know, Dave Yost is, is suing uh, and they've, they're facing other lawsuits. And so he doesn't think they can even come in and testify about it. So it's so like there's a simple answer then, right? There's a simple answer. Then you don't get the money. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we, we'll cancel the bailout. We won't replace it until you can prove you need it. Look, there were serious questions about whether they need this money or not, because right after they got it, they gave their investors a gigantic windfall of cash. And it's like, well, if you're so tight right. with money, how did you do that? And and so if they believe they need this money to keep these things going because it's backup kind of green energy in case our natural gas prices go up, prove it. I mean, it's that's a basic. I mean, really, this would be like you going to the bank saying, "I want to borrow money to buy a house, but I don't want to show you anything about well, my finances well, that, or I can pay." This is Chris Wernaski, but just to note, before two thousand eight, you could actually go into a bank and get a loan for a house without showing any money at all. <laughs> but we, but we supposedly fix that anyway. Yeah, you th- know, it's funny because uh, State Representative Dave Leland, who's a, a ranking Democrat on this committee, used the exact same comparison and you did. He, he said Energy Harbor produced less financial information for a billion dollar bailout than the average homeowner has to present to get a loan on a mortgage. <laughs> but, but there really is an easy fix here. All the, all the legislature has to do is say no. Or, you know, until you come in and show us something, you don't get to ride on the backs of Ohio residents who are already struggling economically. This is like the most crooked thing I've ever heard <laughs> on a utility system basis. I mean, first it was First Energy being sleazy. Now they, you know, they dished off the, you, the nuclear plants to get out of this thing to, a, to this subsidiary that's not related anymore. And now they're doing it. So, you know, okay, legislator, you know what to do. Say no. It's this week in the CLE. A federal judge avoided making a ruling on whether Ohio must let counties provide more than one drop box for ballots, but he still have something to say on the matter. Chris Ranowski, I could argue that he weaseled out of making a decision in this case after having an all day hearing, but he kind of covered himself by making some statements, right? Well, and it was a multiple day hearing and uh, it, U.S. U.S. District Judge Dan Polster is actually known it, he has quite a reputation of of actually making people sit at a table and try to negotiate things but, but instead of actually him ruling and making decisions on stuff. You might know him. He actually is overseeing the slew of opioid legislation that was uh, filed against the producers of fentanyl and, and other drugs. So, you know, this ruling wasn't a huge surprise or lack of ruling, I guess I should say, wasn't a huge surprise Friday when it came down. Um, but he basically ordered uh, a Secretary of State Frank LaRose to work with Cuyahoga County Board of Elections to alleviate the, quote, looming crisis for voters who plan to personally deliver their ballots for the November 3rd election rather than returning them by mail. He basically he had uh, 15 hours of testimony and arguments uh, last week regarding the drop boxes and on August 12th. Because on August 12th, LaRose had issued a directive that permitted each county to have just one drop box at its board of elections. In his ruling, Polster said that he agrees with the conclusion that nothing in state law prohibits offsite drop boxes 
or offsite delivery of ballots. And he said the, that, you know, he wants them to just basically sit down and try to resolve this problem. But he was very sort of critical about, you know, this, this entire process. He said this problem could be fixed by the secretary of state and quote, it's his job to work with each board to address any local issue that significantly impacts voters in that county being able to cast their ballots. So then um, he also was very critical of the state legislature saying that, you know, this is something that could have addressed back in April when, you know, we had all of the issues with the primary related to the coronavirus. So the early ballots go out a week from tomorrow, right? So how much time is he giving them to come to the table to negotiate because it would take a little bit of time to set up those drop boxes once people start getting their early ballots. Uh, he's not giving them much time. And he he basically, he, he said that August 12th was far too late to issue a directive. So we'll see. I mean, it, it's, I, I just, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here. I, it, it's, you're right. I mean, we're getting too close to election day. We're, we're about, a, we're getting close to having just like a month. And so we're running out of time here. All right. One of the most frightening things that came out of this, uh, and you had mentioned it in a text last week, mm-hmm. was the prediction of traffic jams because Euclid Avenue cannot handle the the potential number of cars that would be coming, especially as we get closer to Election Day, to drop off their ballots at a single mm-hmm. place. There there were some pretty striking numbers in that part of this this hearing, right. right? One of the you know one of the things that we have talked about was the uh, the ninety minute round trip travel time that some people will have to take in order to cast their ballot. But on Thursday, Polster cited testimony from a, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Chapman, who is a researcher at the University of California at Berkeley, who said as many as 30,000 cars could be jammed around Euclid Avenue on Election Day. And he said, you know, using traffic patterns and voter data from Ohio and other states, tens, you know, tens of thousands of voters might miss their chance to actually cast their ballots because of traffic. And and so, you know, there are logistical things that people don't generally think about when they're like, oh, just run by and drop off your thing. And it's like, no, it's if you've ever tried to go over there on an election day, it, it's it's pretty busy in a normal year. And I think given the insecurity that has been manufactured and created within our postal service, I think more people are going to, you know, use driving downtown to the board of elections offices, their backup plan. And, and it's going to create a, a traffic headache. So uh, we should look into that. I mean, that's something that yeah. I think the, that we should talk to the police and, and the board of elections about at some point. Yeah. And we do have a little bit of a comparison. There was a day when there were multiple post offices in the County that would accept tax returns on, on April 15th. And even with multiple post offices accepting them, you still had pretty massive traffic jams. If you all had to go to one place, which, you know, this is what that will be, it would be a nightmare. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Now that she's recovering, what is the message that Summit County Prosecutor Sherry Bevan Walsh has for people who doubt the danger of the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, she she describes a pretty agonizing week. Yeah, she does. And she put this out on her, I think, personal Facebook page and let people know uh, that this is a really serious illness and not to take it uh, lightly. She wrote that she was just released from the hospital, but still is really sick. 
She said, quote, for those who want to compare this to the flu, I can tell you that in my case, I have never felt this horrible in my life. I feel worse than I did when I was going through chemo for breast cancer. I have never felt more worried about my health. So she wants people to take this seriously. She asked everyone to wear a mask. She knows that everyone is tired from what she called the disruption that COVID-19 has caused, but we should all be grateful for our health. I hear from people pretty regularly who are doubters about the coronavirus. I mean, they'll even challenge me at times saying, do you know a single person that's had it? And like, I respond, yes, I have an uncle who died of it. So we have some experience, but they're still out there. There's still people that say, you know, the death rate's not that high and it only affects old people. And, you know, it's just like the flu. And yet anecdotally, every time you, you talk to somebody that's been through the ringer on this, they tell you there's been nothing like it. And we've heard plenty of cases where, that people are suffering months later from mm -hmm. fatigue and head problems and things. So it's interesting to see some, I mean, she's been a prosecutor there for almost 20 years. Right. Um, somebody as well known as her saying, I'm sick as a dog. I mean, I'm out of the hospital and I'm going to make it, but I'm, I'm in a bad way and you should pay attention. I mean, she said it was worse than chemo for breast right. cancer. And that's like, whoa. So doing a public service, even as she suffers, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. After two polls last week showed Ohio is a dead heat for the presidential race, what did a Fox News poll over the weekend show? Jane Cahoon, this did not show a dead heat. Well, it didn't. It showed that President Trump is down by five points, that Joe Biden leads him 50 to 45. But And that is not as close as the, the previous two polls from Baldwin-Wallace and Quinnipiac. But it is still within the margin of error of plus or minus three percentage points, you know, you got to go plus or minus. So you could argue that it is, you know, neck and neck. So, um, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is when we started the year, everybody was writing us off as a red state. We're not a, a bellwether state anymore, and which happens every four years. But then as you get closer, we are, although, you know, the polling in 2016 was a nightmare. It was all bad. We don't know whether, it's accurate this time. I mean, there was a lot of evidence last time that the Trump voters were not honest with the pollsters, whether it was intentional or they were embarrassed to say they were voting for him. They weren't telling the pollsters the truth. And then then we weren't a close state at all. Trump won resoundingly. It, right. It'll be interesting to see what we learn of the polls this year. There's probably less embarrassment voting for him because when he won, it was an affirmation for all those people that voted for him. And they, they seem to have quite a strong voice these days. But <laughs> but if it's an intentional misleading of the pollsters, like like some believe it was in 2016, <laughs> we're talking about nonsense because it doesn't right. tell you You just anything. can't put too much stock into them. As, as politicians always say, you know, the real poll is on election day. But this poll did show some of the same trends we've seen in other polls. For instance, the, the gender gap and uh, Biden had way more support among non-white voters and Trump had an advantage among uh, white people without college degrees. And um, so it, we did, we did see sort of the same patterns. So who knows? Well, and people forget Trump won the majority of the white vote last time. So it's not right. surprising that that's the way that's coming out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is the chief claim in a lawsuit filed by a season pass holder for a park in the Cedar Fair chain, which includes Cedar Point? Chris Wernowski, they're trying to seek class action status, so this could be big. 
Yeah, so a season pass holder on Friday filed suit against the parent company, uh, Cedar Point and uh, Dorney Park and, and a dozen other major theme parks in a suit that says that the company failed to offer reimbursements for a season hindered by the pandemic. And it's my understanding that, you know, they different parks sort of had different solutions to this. You know, I know Cedar Point, you know, did open in some sort of limited capacity and you could use your season pass, but there are people who are saying that they were having a difficult time getting their money back and, and getting reimbursements for the se- the season that was basically just devastated by the coronavirus. Well, what Cedar point actually made the move of extending the season mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the 2020 holder through 2021. But this case says, well, you know, but we paid for full access in 2020. We didn't get it. So you've reneged. You owe us money back. I mean, it's an interesting claim. I, I, I think it puts Cedar Fair in a very difficult situation. And if this becomes a class action where it covers all of their parks and all their pass holders, it could be very expensive for them. Well, and we we saw some issues related to something similar to this with airlines at some point where they were just offering people, you know, oh, you can have credit for future flights and stuff like that. And they were not really giving anybody reimbursements. They were just saying, yeah, you know, you're, you'll be able to fly eventually. And, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that once they take your money, they're, they're very hard pressed to want to give it back. And, <laughs> and, and companies like this had an easier time of getting money from the government, I think, than, than the average American did throughout all of this. So, so, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if this shakes out and if it actually does get granted class action status, because you're right that, you know, it could cover a lot more ground and could include a lot more people. I mean, they have parks in California and all over, all over the country. So, you know, this could be a potentially huge blow to them. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. Longtime Cleveland city councilman, Matt Zone, who became controversial this year for his refusal to hold hearings on the police response to the May 30th riot, where his police officer son was working, is stepping down. What's he going to do? Laura Johnston, Matt Zone had a pretty good reputation up until this year when he refused to do his job as public safety committee chairman. Kind of astounding that he stood fast on that, but he's leaving. So maybe there's hope yet. What's he doing? So he is leaving. He's going to the Western Reserve Land Conservancy, where he's going to lead this thriving community, thriving communities institute. This is the program formerly run by Jim Rakakis, who was formerly the Cuyahoga County treasurer and before that, actually a Cleveland city councilman. So Rakakis is the one who helped create the first county land bank in the state in Cuyahoga County. Now the communities, thriving communities, works with those land banks to transform vacant, unsafe, unproductive properties into useful ones. They want to eliminate those eyesores that attract crime and lower neighboring home values and put them to better use. So sometimes they knock them down. Sometimes they rehab them. They also... Uh, conduct some property service. They plant trees. They can secure funding for the demolition. Um, so he will be working with the same kind of some of the same kind of neighborhoods that he would have been working with in city council. He just will be doing it on a larger outside the city scale. He's been a councilman so long that mm-hmm. I was the city hall reporter when he was first <laughs> seated. So it's been a long time. 2001. Almost, you know, almost 20 years. And he's had some significant significant successes in spite of mm-hmm. this police thing the the whole um gordon square development 
was his vision with with others. But when he first proposed that, there were people rolling their eyes because what he was trying to turn into a thriving arts district was basically bombed out storefronts. And today it's it's pretty special place still has challenges, but it's but it's part of his legacy that that came together. And, and there are other good things that have happened in his word. I mean, he's very popular. He had a, he gave a city club speech a couple of years ago that sold out. I mean, how many city council people can give a city club speech and sell out? I mean, most, most of them, I don't think anybody would want to hear what they have to say. So, so he <laughs> and, leaves with a pretty good legacy. It's just a shame. He tarnished it by not doing his job as public safety chair. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Yet another Ohio Republican has stepped up to denounce the implications from President Donald Trump that the election results will not be legitimate. First, it was Mike DeWine. Then it was Rob Portman. Actually, we could also throw John Houston in there. Who's the latest, Jane Cahoon? Well, it's none other than Ohio's chief elections officer, Secretary of State Frank LaRose. We've talked about this before, how President Trump has put some Ohio Republican leaders in, in kind of an awkward position because they, they have to defend our election procedures, but while trying not to offend the president who's yelling these false claims about rigged elections and fraud with the with the mail-in voting system. But anyway, LaRose was, uh, he made a public appearance in Columbus during which he was asked about this, asked about what the president said. And he said, nah, I'm not going to get into what Trump said specifically, which is how most Republicans have handled that. But, but he said that election results should be accepted as legitimate by all candidates. And he said, Large, massive numbers of Ohioans know they can trust their election result. When this thing is over, people will know it's a true reflection of the will of the people of Ohio. And if a candidate chooses to not accept the results, I think that will look ridiculous. What, what I find interesting about this battle is, is that in every county, there is an elections director. And at the, every state, there is an elections chief, a secretary of state, all of whom their performance matters to them. So so if Donald Trump proves to be right, it means that all of these people failed miserably at their jobs. So they're all very defensive about that. They're all saying, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. This is my, my one reason for getting up in the morning. If this doesn't work, I'm an abject failure. So, it, so it's just fascinating that there's an army of people, Republican and Democrat, that are not accepting what what this Republican president is continues to try, right. and do, which is so this. But we don't want to offend him, right? We don't want to. We don't want to right. directly <laughs> criticize him. But, yeah, they they yeah. won't do that because they're yeah right. So you know what? Well, one thing that Larose uh, also said, which I thought was interesting, he he talked about being transparent about this because of the fact in Ohio you know, mail-in ballots are still counted as long as they're postmarked the day before the election, as long as they arrive within 10 days. So, you know, on election night, we could have a lot of outstanding absentee ballots. And he said he plans to prominently display the number of outstanding absentee ballots when the state reports the election results. So, you know, you'll know if, if somebody is ahead by 100,000 votes, and, and but we still have like 200,000 outstanding ballots that it's you can't 
you can't claim victory. So well, this um, this changes the whole strategy of get out the vote. In the past, it was getting people to the polls on election day. What they're going, what the people who want to get out the vote are going to be doing is knocking on your door saying, "Turn in your ballot, turn in yeah. your ballot," <laughs> because they don't want people to mail them late. They don't want them to to get in the long Euclid Avenue line to drop them off at the drop box. So I, again, I, this is all a big unknown. This has never happened before. The leader of the country casting these doubts. It'll be interesting to see if people turn these things early as as they're being advocated to and how much energy is put in by the parties to get the ballots in. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do the people who serve alcohol at First Energy Stadium have to say about why they broke the law and kept serving after 10 p.m. during the recent Browns night game? Chris Ranowski, this was a this was kind of a little gotcha that came out. They were cited because they <laughs> violated the coronavirus rules when the uh, Browns had their home opener. What uh, what what do they say is the reason they broke the law? Right. So the Ohio investigative unit cited Aramark Sports and Entertainment Service, which is the contractor that serves alcohol and food and and everything at um, First Energy Stadium uh, for serving alcohol after hours when the Browns squared off here uh, during the Cincinnati Bengals on September 17th. Under the rules uh, the state imposed to stop the coronavirus spread, establishes, establishments can't sell liquor or alcohol after 10 o'clock. Um, a Brown spokesperson said in an email that the organization did not realize that the state alcohol's restriction also applied to football games. So, <laughs> so, so and they they said as part of our responsible restart plan approval process, we told uh, they communicated their attention to uh, of applying our NFL approved best practices and procedures of ending alcohol sales and services at the start of the fourth quarter. Uh, we now understand that adhering to the state order of concluding alcohol service at 10 o'clock also applies to First Energy Stadium, even though our venue doesn't fall under the category of being a bar or a restaurant. So, so they it, use the classic defense of every lawbreaker. Is that wrong? I right. didn't know what the law was. <laughs> Ignorance of the law does not. Better, this is Lord Johnson. It's always better to apologize, right? Ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder how much money they made in that those alcohol sales. You know, if they were truly contrite, they would take that amount of money and donate it to charity. We'll have to see if that happens. I'm surprised they haven't changed the rules specifically for sports. I think, you know, they sports and alcohol have gotten a lot of leeway throughout the pandemic. So, so, yeah, so maybe but I, but I think there's also the fear that if you, if people start to drink too much, they lose the inhibitions, they stop wearing the masks and you get into trouble. That's why Mike DeWine has clamped down so hard on the bars. I don't know. We'll have to see. You're right. Sports gets away with a lot. Of course, when the Indians are in the playoffs, there'll be no sales because there won't be anybody there to watch it. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why are some officials questioning the plans to widen Interstate 77 to three lanes in parts of Summit County? Lord Johnston, when we first talked about this plan a few weeks back, we raised questions. We wondered whether the reduction in commuting would be permanent post-COVID, reducing the need for these extra these extra lanes in each direction. Some other people have some other ideas for how they might spend that money. What are they? Well, I want to say that, of course, you were right, Chris. Other people are raising the same concern about the the need for this um, expansion when we're not commuting as much. But the, this big idea is that it's $125 million. They plan to add lanes to a 9.2-mile section of I-77 that's through largely residential Bath and Richfield townships, which are very spread out um, homes. And so 
Jason Segedy from Akron, he's the director of planning and urban development. He thinks that the money should be spent on the urban core in Summit County. He says they'd rather have the funds being spent on this project to maintain older infrastructure rather than building new lanes, that they want to fix what they have, um, and that they're trying to grow the city's population. So they want people to be able to move into the city of Akron rather than spread out more into the exurbia of Bath and Richfield. So his, his argument is don't add more, fix what you've got. And then in Bath Township that runs through this, it's an environmental issue. The trustee bit Becky Corbett, she's really worried about Yellow Creek, which is a tributary of the Cuyahoga River that overflows when there's too much water. And this would add, obviously, more impermeable surface. So more water would be forced off the road. And it actually goes over the Yellow Creek and it falls straight down. And she's really worried about all that water impact on um, the environment. Of course, it's not an either-or choice here. It's not that they, if they don't spend the money on the interstate, they'll spend it on Akron Roads <laughs> or something. True. It's not the way ODOT works. ODOT builds highways and maintains highways. And so this is really, do you want the extra lanes or do you not want the extra lanes? The other things you're discussing are not much of an option. I'm sure that there'll be some questions raised with ODOT about the drainage issue because we are seeing flooding more and more. We've talked about it here with the downpours that we get, that the roads really weren't planned to handle as the uh, climate changes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I should point out, I did receive an email from somebody last week who said she hears some of our political biases sneaking into our discussions. I want to say this is meant to be an edgy discussion where we Call the call the facts as we see them, but our bias is not supposed to be there. We'll pay more attention in the future. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow, Debate Day, Indians-Yankees Day, with another discussion of the news.